Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I am Travis Shaddix. It is Monday morning, February 26th, 2024. Turfgrass Epistemology seeks to answer the question, how do we know what we know about turfgrass science? There's a lot of claims that exist out there. And really all I'm asking is, how do you know? It's pretty much as simple as that. <laughs> and a purist, a, you know, a, a strict, strict purist, solipsist, would say, we don't know. We never can know for sure. So really, it's a matter of being convinced by the evidence. You know, how much evidence is necessary to convince you that something's true? Because we really can't know anything 100% for sure, right? So we try to look for the evidence in the scientific literature, and we explore that. Try to build a model about turfgrass science, and hopefully base our decisions as best we can on that model. Doesn't mean they're right. You know, it, it could be we could be wrong, but following that sort of advice is more likely to be a best management practice, or that, that recommendation following the evidence in the literature, you're more likely to result in, in an efficient program than if you don't follow it. So that's what we do here at Turfgrass Epistemology. Lots of little housekeeping stuff we got to go over. First is, I get a, I've been getting some questions about um, my email. My email address is in the description of almost every video. It's travisshaddix at gmail.com. So if you want to send me a question uh, privately or you don't want to put it in a public chat forum, that's understandable. Just send it to me at travisshaddix at gmail.com and look in the description of the video. It should be, I think it's in every video. Well, any of the last several months it's been in, I've put it in every video. Second thing on the list is there's been some questions about me writing a manual or providing some sort of, I don't know, pamphlet or something, or I don't know, what, what, whatever people are looking to have me produce something that they can follow. And, you know, I'm happy to do that, but I'd have to charge for that. In reality, they already exist anyway. So I'd feel awkward charging for something that already exists. You can go get it for free. And the way to find that is now also in the description of all my videos. There's a PDF that is available through, I think it's the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. I, I can't remember the exact link, but the link is in all the descriptions of the, well, the, the, the video is moving forward. It's, it's in the description. It's in, it should be in the description of this video. And it's a PDF that contains links to all the turf grass sites at the land-grant institutions in the United States. So if you're in Nebraska, you just scroll down to Nebraska. I guess I could open it up. Can I find my own? Or can I look at my own description of the video while I'm live? I don't know. Let me see if I can find it while I'm here. I can just open it right back, right up here. Maybe just kind of walk you through it. 
so everybody's on the same page here. Give me a minute. I wasn't really thinking I would do this, but it makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, here it is. So I'm going to open this up. See if I can get it on the main page here. And it's not really lined up well for the people watching, but this PDF is entitled U.S. Land-Grant Colleges and Universities, Turfgrass Programs and Extension Service Information. And it's through, yeah, the United States Department of Agriculture. So it's a USDA.gov website. And it has Alabama, and it says Auburn University Turfgrass Program, and it has a link to that program in, at Auburn. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California. It goes all the way through all the states. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Turfgrass site is at that university is operational or functional. For example, the Kentucky website is functional, but there's no Kentucky Turfgrass faculty anymore. It, there is a staff member there who does the best job he can do uh, with extension, but there is no uh, there is no longer any faculty working on turfgrass dedicated you know dedicated turfgrass research at, at Kentucky anymore. So it doesn't necessarily mean the the program is active, but the link to the program is on this on this PDF in Louisiana and Maine and you know, you just name it. You just go down there and click on it. And you can follow that. You can follow that link or those links and find evidence-based information as best as it, as it exists or extension information in turfgrass science. And that's really what I would recommend you do rather than me producing something, because all I would do is you know, produce basically the same information that exists out there already. And I would probably have to charge for it. <laughs> so there's no point in that. It's already, it's already out there. You might as well just go get it for free from the various university extension programs. So that was one thing I wanted to get off. It's that, that link is going to be in the description of pretty much as, as long as I remember to put it in there in the, in the descriptions of the videos moving forward as well as my emails. And then my email's been there for a while, so you shouldn't have any problem finding me or finding a Turfgrass extension program if you live in the United States. Okay, so that's that. The next thing is, I've been dis discussing memberships. I'm still not 100% sure what I'm gonna do. Um, uh, oh, you want me to link the PDF? Let me link the bell on a second. <laughs> it's in the description of the video. Um, Travis Pelusky in the chat. So if you just go to the video description, let me just show you. The, the, I'll just put it in chat for this group. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that moving forward because it's just too much <laughs> to keep up with. But it's in this it's in this uh, video description, and I will put it in chat right now. So there's the there's the link for uh, the PDF that I was referring to should pop up on the screen here shortly. Okay, so um, for those people that want to track that down and look it up, feel free. Now back on track on memberships. I, I, I kind of have, I'm feeling more comfortable with it. Um, but what I'd like to offer for you all listening and might be interested in it is to provide your input or your feedback as to what you would, you know, expect or you know, like to see 
in memberships. There's going to be probably, if I ever do it, which is a big if, but if I ever do it, there'll probably be a morning show that's membership members only. That's at the very low, the very bottom of the fee, the lowest fee tier or whatever you call it. And there'll be some other discounts on like consultations and things like that. And then there'll be another tier where if you want to join into the community and have Zoom meetings with you know groups that are not recorded or anything, they're not online. Um, that would be an option for people that wanted to spend a little bit more to get that opportunity to have face-to-face time with the other people in the community. So I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth on what I want to do with that. But right now, I, I don't have a date that I'm going to do it. And I'm still not 100% sure if I'm even going to do it. So if you want to provide your input, and you want to have some interaction and you know and me listen to what you're interested in in receiving then send me an email or send a text or call my voicemail at, at uh, and leave a leave a message and let me know you know yeah I'm interested in that and I'll, I'd like to see this or I'd look like to delve deeper into these topics in this way or whatever and my my voicemail is 859-444-4234 you can text me or send me a voicemail at that or email me okay and we'll see what comes of it. I don't know. On that note with memberships, there'll be a disc. If we end up doing it for members, there'll be a discount on the Calendly consultations on calendly.com slash Travis Shaddix, where I provide soil and turf grass consulting services via web chat, web interface and web meetings. That fee that exists on there now, $50 is going to go up. But I think for members, it'll just stay the same. So in essence, if you're going to do a consultation, you might as well just be a member of YouTube because it's going to end up being the same price anyway. So you might as well just be a member. Uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking anyway. But don't forget that opportunity if you want to take advantage of that and have some input on your program. That's available. Okay. Last little thing, and I'm going to get into the um, kind of the meat of the top meat of the the, the show today is uh, at the end of the show, there's going to be some new music. So. Stay tuned. <laughs> it's very different music. For those of you who like the, the exit music, you're going to probably, if you like rock music and like heavy metal, you're probably going to turn it off. <laughs> I'm just be, being frank here. Um, but as you know, my family's Brazilian. And so there's a lot of Brazilian music in my house. But there's one artist in Brazil who I do like. And, um, I've actually seen most of the artists I've most of the artists I've played on the show I've, I've actually seen live numerous times and including the one today that I'll sh- I'll play at the end. She's probably the second most famous, maybe third most famous artist in Brazil, music musician in Brazil. She might be number 1 now to be frank, but it's probably num- she's probably number 2 because it's hard to Shusha has been around forever and I don't I think Shusha's probably still the number 1 musician in Brazil, but Regardless, you'll have some little bit of Brazilian music, but there's a little bit of like up-tempo rock music, rock beat to it. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. Good morning, Randy from Bulgaria, Transition Zone guy, Connecticut Cubanican. Good morning. Fahid Navi. That's a new one, new handle to me. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Vahid. How can you, the question is, how can we change hard clay soil structure? <laughs> That's a, that's a difficult question to answer. The question I would have is, why do you want to change the hard clay soil structure to begin with? How do you know you actually need to do that? Turf grass 
you know, the, the answer to that is, you know, I'll just give you the answer. The answer is your turf grass is not acceptable as a result of the hard clay. And then the next question I would have for you, how did you determine that it's not acceptable because of the hard clay and not something else? So there's a little bit more involved before we start going into physical alterations of the soil. Okay. I don't see a whole lot of value in attempting to adjust the structure or the texture of a soil unless we have a good reason. And in most cases, not all, but in most cases in turfgrass science, the good reason has to be connected to the performance of the turf. Okay, so if you've determined that the turf grass is unacceptable or not performing to your acceptable standards because it's the hard because of the hard clay, like I said, the next question is going to be how'd you know? How do you how'd you figure that out? Okay, because turf grass will, will grow in clay all day long. I mean, mo my my soil here, I can barely get a probe in the ground, maybe an inch or two. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, where there's um, pretty healthy soils here. I can barely get my probe in the soil an inch or two. I really have to push down and get it down, you know, three or four inches in most locations. Oftentimes I'll hit a rock or something or some limestone. And the turf looks fine here. In, in Florida, I could bury that probe all the way down 10 inches with hardly any problem, just straight down, and the turf looked fine there. So there's a wide variety of soil textures and structures that the turf, grass, turf grasses will grow very well in. Um, so I would ask yourself that question first and figure out if, that, if that's actually the cause, the causal agent or the cause of your issue. Because if you look at some of the past videos, I think majority of the audience who, who watches this channel is, is becoming more familiar with my thought process. And that is, um, before we get to that point where we're looking at soils, we want to back up and ask, what is the greatest risk of, uh, you know, an, an unacceptable turf grass? Greatest risk is probably water first, and then light, and then temperature, and then pests or damage, and then soil. Usually, at the very end is soil. So before we get to that point, I'd I'd want to confirm: Hey, water is fine, quantity is fine, quality is fine, the light and the temperature is fine. Which I don't know where you live, Vahid. I'm not not sure where you live, but right now in Lexington, the, the temperature and the light is not fine for cool season grasses. It's, there's, it's still dormant out there right now. There might be a little bit of growth going on, but not a whole lot. So the, the light and the temperature right now is what's restricting um, turf grass growth here in Lexington. And so I would just stop right there and recognize, hey, well, the turf isn't good because the light and temperature is not, not uh, optimal at the moment. But in the optimal time of the year, say September, October here, if it's not growing well, that would be a good time to diagnose whether or not you actually have a soil issue because the water's probably fine, the light's probably fine, the temperature's probably fine, the injury's probably, well, if you checked it off and the injury was fine, then we start looking at soil issues. And if it is that, then we can have another conversation of how you adjust hard clay soil. But I will say this, Vahid, is that it's very common to have that concern, homeowners and lawn care operators and superintendents and sport turf managers, it's very common to have that concern, but I, I will say that it's not near as common to actually have that be the problem. Compacted clay soils are not near as common as you might think. Obviously, if you're having cart traffic and you're having football players and soccer players coming on and off the field at the same spot and all that stuff, that's another issue where you actually do have traffic compaction. Um, but whether or not it's 
um, your turf grass is unacceptable simply because it has hard clay or your perception is that it has hard clay. It may or may, may or may not actually be that. It would require a little bit more investigation before I went too far down that road, especially if it costs money to do it. Brady419, good morning. Andrew Burris. You didn't miss anything so far. Just going over some housekeeping items. I had a sick daughter yesterday. I almost didn't make it today. She came down with some strep throat and we got her on some antibiotics yesterday and, and she woke up this morning fine, a-okay, and no temperature or anything. So I went ahead and took her to school. So that reminds me, if anything comes up and I have something scheduled and you show up, anybody shows up for this live stream and I'm not on, check the community tab because I can always put a post on the community tab from my phone, even if I'm in, you know, the the nurse's office or something with a sick child. Um, I can say, hey, I'm not going to be there today. Uh, so always check the community tab if something odd look, something strange comes up and you, you don't see me on for some reason. Okay, enough about that. So this last week or two in Lexington and really not just Lexington, but around some parts of the United States, it's been a, it's been a little warmer. It was really cold and wet in January here. The Northeast has been getting hammered. Some strange weather has been going on in the New England area, and it's just been a little odd. But a week or two, it got a little warm. Here in Lexington, it got up to probably 65 or 70 degrees. And I unfortunately, I even have a photo on my phone of it. I unfortunately saw some lawn care companies out spreading fertilizer. And it got me thinking about, you know, what's the mentality of homeowners and lawn care operators right now in the in the United States about wanting to get out and do stuff, wanting to get out and spray fertil, uh, spray pre-emergence and wanting to get out and spread fertilizer and so forth. Just because it got warm last week, warm being 60, 65 degrees, it was very nice here, doesn't mean that the turf is ready to receive fertilizer or the germination of weeds is forthcoming yet. So for your pre-emergent applications is where I'm going with this primarily, but also for nutrient applications. We want to base a lot of that decision as to when we go out on soil temperatures. That's the metric that is most you know, generally most well correlated with seed germinations, turf grass coming out of uh, dormancy and growth and so forth is largely dictated by, not largely dictated, largely associated with soil temperatures as opposed to air temperatures or daily temperatures of the air, you know, whatever the case might be. So I wanted to show you guys what I do whenever I'm, you know, feeling like, oh, is it time to get out there yet? I don't know. You know, is it, have I mowed it yet? And I haven't mowed it yet. Well, maybe I should wait. Some people use other indicator species of plants, which there's documentation on like tulips and daffodils and, you know, red buds and all sorts of different plants that tend to come out and start growing at a certain time of year. And there's, there are some actual papers that's showing that when these indicator species begin to change is, is you should expect to see this in weed germination or turf grass germination, turf grass growth and so forth. Those sorts of things, there is some validity to that. But what I want to show is this, where you go find soil temperatures. You say, okay, Travis, the soil temperature should be 55 degrees or 50 degrees before we really start spending some serious time, you know, okay, now we get it, need to get out there and start spraying stuff and spreading stuff. And then, uh, but how do you go find that? You know, some people may not even know how to go find what the soil temperature is right now. And more importantly than that, what historically has been the soil, the, the date where soil temperature goes up above 55 degrees in your spe specific area. Um, so, so I wanted to go over that real briefly. So if you go to the internet and you just Google like national soil temperature database or national historical 
soil temperatures, you're going to come up with a lot of options to, to pick from. There's, uh, in the United States, there's a series of weather stations all over the nation, thousands of these, literally thousands of, of weather stations that the states and the federal government have access to that they you know, pull data from. For example, in Kentucky, we use, there's a, a, a network called the MesoNet. In Florida, there's the Fawn, which is the Florida Area Weather Network. There's one in Oklahoma. There's one in North Dakota. There's, there's, they're all over the place. But how do you go find this stuff? So what, what you do is you, when you Google soil temperature or historic soil temperature, or if you're in Nebraska, Nebraska soil temperature, you're going to come up with some link. And what I wanted to show you is some of those links. And then really what I end up doing, which is just easier, to be frank, than going through all this. When, when I pull up the Mesonet in Kentucky, it looks like this. And this is the Kentucky Mesonet through West, uh, w, uh, Western Kentucky University, which is um, about two, two and a half, three hours west of me here, down near Bowling Green, Kentucky. But that, that location has a database, or it amasses data from various locations, and it comes up with graphs like this. And what I'm looking at for those listening is a, is a graph that has dates like February 20th, 21st, 22nd, and so forth on the x-axis. And then soil temperature on the y-axis going from 30 to 62. And you see a bunch of different lines on here and so forth. Well, there's an elevator button here that you, can, well, you can't see it on your screen. For some reason, it never shows up. But it has all the counties of Kentucky. And you can select whatever county you want. And I live in Fayette County, Kentucky. So uh, you can select Fayette County. You can select soil moisture, soil temperature, and soil moisture precipitation, whatever you want to look at. And you can select the time interval interval for what you you're interested in. And if you're interested in metric units, you can select metric for Celsius and temperature. But this graph here, to me, um, I, I don't use this. Just to be honest, I use Mesonet because you can actually pull the numbers. When I was um, publishing work, you can actually pull data, and I will do that for publication purposes. But if I just want to know rough numbers, hey, what date am I gonna? It's, is fifty? Is the temperature gonna go above fifty five degrees? I won't use this. But I'm letting you know that it does exist. You can go there and look and see what the soil temperature is. And on this graph, there's a bunch of lines. It's really hard to figure out what's what. But what, it, what these lines are is just different depths of soil temperature. And the soil temperature at 40 inches, for example, that's not very useful for me and for you. So I'll, rem I'll remove that from the graph. And 20 inches, I'll remove that. You can click on this little um, legend down here and remove that. Soil temperature at 8. So I'm just really interested in either 2 or 4 inches in depth. And you can see last week, you saw, as I mentioned, the temperature got up about 65, 70 degrees and the soil temperature went up to about 50, whatever this is, 52 degrees at two inches and about 50 degrees at four inches. And so if we're waiting to apply pre-emergent herbicides or we're waiting to apply fertilizers and you're going to use soil temperatures as an indicator for that, which I wouldn't use an indicator for that necessarily for fertilizers, but for, because you can just kind of wait and see when the turf grass is growing and then start your cycles. But for pre-emergent herbicides, where you want to get the, the pre-emergent on the ground before you actually see the weed, this is probably more useful to you. And usually, and I can, sh I can show those publications if you want to, but usually the temperatures between 50 and 55 degrees is we want to have the pre-emergent on the ground before that. You know, I don't, I'm not a weed biologist, like, but I can go into that literature and show you why we use that 55 degrees temperature as a rough estimate as to when we would expect to see germination in some, in some weed species. But you can see it went up and now we're back down here a week later or two or three days later, whatever it is. And the temperature is back down into the mid 40s, 43, 44, where it was up next to near 50. OK, so although it got warm there for two or three days 
and you feel like, hey, I want to go out and start, you know, mowing or I want to go out and start and spreading fertilizer or spraying pre-emergent herbicides or whatever. The risk is, is that you spray out that pre-emergent herbicide too early and the efficacy of that two or three week window that you have on that herbicide application or month or whatever, that efficacy is going to start to fade before the weeds start to germinate. And you don't want that because you end up losing some of the um, value in that application, right? So hold off on these applications. I know you might be antsy and you're being kept up all winter and you want to get your crew out or you want to go out and start spraying the stuff out and you know getting, getting the applications going. But you're still, at least here in Lexington, you're still at least three or four weeks away. And I'm going to show you how I know that. Okay. But this graph is hard to see it because you can't see historic dates, right? You just see what's going on in the last week or two. Now I can go back in the data and pull all that stuff, but it's not easy to see. Okay. There's other websites like, for example, the one in Cornell that will show what's going on today. Okay. So they have soil temperature here and growing degree days and all sorts of information, dandelion recommendations and so forth. But you can see through Cornell, basically the entire Northeast United States, all the way up into Maine, down into West Virginia, what happened yesterday, February 25th, 2024, in terms of the two inch soil temperatures. So here's another website. So if you're in that particular area of the, of the country, this would be an area that I would consider, you know, a website I would consider using if you're wanting to kind of get a ballpark idea of what's going on with soil temperatures. However, one of the more useful ones, as is usually the case with stuff online, is Purdue. Okay. Purdue, for some reason, has got it figured out where the rest of us, I don't know, we're lollygagging around and we haven't quite figured out how to do it right. So we, we need to follow what Purdue is doing, apparently. But Purdue has a website and it's called, it's, the title is, actually, I'll put this in chat so everybody has it if, you, if you're interested. The, the, the website is mrcc.purdue.edu. And um, the, it's, it's, MRCC stands for Midwestern Regional Climate Center. Hang on one second. Let me see here. Yeah. Okay. Make sure we're good here. Okay. And on this website, they're going to have like the north, mid, mid central, north central states in the United States. And they're going to have a lot of good information on here. So I'm going to walk you through here and you can see what I think is a little bit more useful information to me. And then I'm going to show you one more at the very end. You can see various tabs here, Midwest Climate Watch, custom chilling hour tools, all sorts of data, you know, meteorological information. Okay. Wind chill climatologies, snowfall, all these things. But what I'm interested in is when you come down here at the bottom, it says highlighted products. And it, there's, a, there's a window here called soil temperature climatology. This is deceptively valuable. <laughs> it doesn't look that particular. I don't know. To me, it just doesn't seem like it'd be that valuable. But I'll show you exactly how valuable it is. When you click on that window or box. Actually, I think I already had it up. You're going to come to a map of the United States, and this map contains North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, down into Kansas, over to Kentucky and Ohio, and then all the states above it, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, and all, Iowa, and all those, Illinois, Indiana, okay, Missouri. So it has all those states, and there's, they're colored in. So if you live in one of those states, what you can do is, I live in Kentucky, so I'm going to go down to Kentucky, and I'm going to, I'm going to scroll in here, and I, you're going to 
as I scroll in, it's going to change into like a county resolution of the map. And whoa, what you can't see, hang on a second, what you cannot see, because I have not changed this window yet, what you can't see, well, I'll move it over here, is over on the right, it says select threshold degrees in Fahrenheit. And right now it's set at 50 degrees. You can, oh, this window you can see, you can change this, degree, this, this select threshold to whatever degree you want, or oh, not ever any degree, but a variety of degrees, 30, 32, and so forth. And you can select 50, 55, or 60 degrees Fahrenheit as the threshold so whatever you want to look at right so let's select 55 and you're going to see the map will change colors and it's changed colors and so now i'll adjust this window back again so you can see a little bit clearer is um i'm gonna i'm gonna zoom in a little closer here to where i am in lexington to give you an, an idea as to the value of this particular tool so bravo purdue if I go into Lexington, which is right here, you can kind of make it out a little bit here, Lexington, Kentucky, and you hover your mouse over it, there's going to be a little pop-up window. And that pop-up window has five variables or five dates. The date, the earliest date is April 17th. The early date is April 23rd. The average date it has the late date and the latest date. And that's the date in that particular area where the soil temperature exceeded 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So the earliest date was April 17th, and they have early date would be April 23rd, and then the average date would be the 1st of May, basically. Okay, the 1st of May in that particular area is where this Purdue website is saying is, has historically been, on, and on, I don't know how many years they're averaging this over, um, I don't, I don't know the earliest date. I mean, I don't know the, the length of time, whether it's a 10-year average or 20-year average or whatever, but it's saying that the average date where in Lexington where the soil temperature goes above 55 is May 3rd. So if I'm looking at that, I want to have my pre-emergent down before that. Okay? For sure. I don't want to wait until May 3rd because there's going to be some germination of some weeds. So that's one way to look at it. Okay, you can go to any county, Chicago, you can go up into wherever you want to go into, and you can kind of see, you can get a ballpark idea. I would say this is probably a bit liberal in its estimation. I, I think, you know, the, the 1st of May, the average 1st of May date is probably a little late because I can go pull some data from another location and find it's probably a little earlier than the 1st of May, which is what I'm going to do right now. But that's one way to do it. But really... One of the easiest ways to do it, to find soil temperature, it, I don't know how they, what, where they pull these data from. So I'm a little bit hesitant to recommend it fully until I have more information on exactly how they do it. But Syngenta has a website called greencastonline.com, and in there they have some tools, and one of those tools is soil temperature. Okay, So if, and that's what I would recommend, you know, looking at, because you can select any city in this in the United States and they they default to Greensboro North Carolina which is where their headquarters are and you can go through here and it has the two what's what's going on right now in 2024 the five-year average and the 10-year average okay for Greensboro North Carolina between January and the end of February 2024 okay so let's just say you go to Lexington Kentucky 
So I'll type in Lexington in this location search and I'll put, it'll pull up Lexington, Kentucky, and it'll give me what's going on in 2024, the five-year average and the 10-year average. I'm not so much interested in the five-year average, so I'll click this and it'll eliminate that from the screen. So now I'm looking at the 10-year average and then what's going on this year from the beginning of the year. But that still doesn't really give me what I'm really looking for. And what I'm looking for is when historically has that temperature gone above 55? So what you can do is you can click on this, this um, date range and you just go, just hit, click previous year. There's, there's last 30 days, current month, previous month, current year, and then previous year. If you click on previous year, it's going to pull up a map of what happened last year, but also the 10-year average across months of the year. Okay, I'm going to eliminate the five-year average so it's easier to see. I can even eliminate 2023. And this is the 10-year average for Lexington, Kentucky soil temperature. And you can just move your mouse along here and it gives you the date and it gives you the temperature. So if I just keep moving my mouse along here and it comes to 55, 56 right in here. Okay, so it crossed 55 over in, on a 10-year average at about the beginning of April. Okay, that's the 10-year average. So if I looked at the previous one from Purdue, it said the beginning of May. This one says the beginning of April. I don't know where either one of these are pulling, the length of time they're pulling the averages from. But you can see after, on this Syngenta website, you'll see after, say, the 1st of April, the temperature remains above 55 degrees all the way until probably looks like November 1, around the, around the 1st of November. So, assuming that they're pulling these data from valid sources, I, I would tend to rely upon this particular, and I don't, I don't endorse Syngenta, I don't get paid by them, um, but I like the way this is, is because it's very easy to see. You can move your mouse, you can see the temperatures, you can see the dates, you can see when it goes above a threshold temperature. You don't need to know 50 degrees or 20 degrees or whatever. You can just move your mouse and it'll tell you the degree it is on average at that month for the last 10 years. Okay. So I use that um, if I'm looking, hey, what is the temperature? What's the, what's the historic? When, when has it historically gone above 55? Well, it looks like the beginning of April. So if that's the case, then I'd want to go out before then, a little bit before then, to get my pre-merchants out. And it's probably going to be about the same time, maybe a little bit early. It depends on what's going on with the grass that time of year in terms of growth, but I want to make sure my fertilizer's out too. So you can use that if you want to use that. Or there's another option. You can do really was what I would, the, the, the most simple homeowner way to do it, lawn care operator way to do it. It's more generalized. So you can, it's like ballpark ranges, but they're pretty, you know, reliable. And that is turf calendar maps from the extension websites that I just showed you how to find using the link in the, in the chat today. Okay. And then the link of this video, there's a link to all the extension websites and most extension offices and turf extension programs will have a turf care calendar. This is the one for Kentucky. Okay. And I can't. I can't mark on this. I didn't know that. Okay. But on this uh, PDF, which is AGR 55, written by Dr. Munshaw, you're going to see management practices, and you're going to see each month of the year, and you're going to see 
the best time to do the action and the second best time to perform the action. So for example, for pre-emergent herbicides, if I'm looking to apply a pre-emergent herbicide for my grassy weeds in Lexington, Kentucky, or in Kentucky, I'm going to be looking at doing that between March and April. Now remember, I said the, the one website said that the temperature went above 55 the 1st of May. Another one said it was the 1st of April. So, you know, we'll have to, if you really want to know for sure, you have to pull the temperature from the nearest available uh, weather station and pull the historic data, which I've done numerous times, but you can pull it all up, the actual data, do an average over the last 10, 20 years and see when the average is at that specific location and then see what it is today. And you can kind of see historically at your location. So when you're dealing with the entire state of Kentucky, it might be the 1st of April, it might be the 1st of May when it goes above 55 degrees. If you're in Western Kentucky, it's probably earlier. If you're in Eastern Kentucky, it's probably later. But this calendar has the months of March and April um, colored in green as the best time to apply your pre, pre-emergent herbicide applications in the spring. So there's a reason why that exists in March and April is because we understand that, or Dr. Munshaw understood, that weed seeds tend to germinate at this temperature and we knew historic data that included those temperatures and we want to get the pre-emergent herbicides out a little bit before that, okay? Notice the nitrogen fertilizer uh, application recommendations are also around that same time, March and April, but it's a secondary best time that he listed here, which I would agree with. Generally, the better time is in September and October. Okay, so those are a few ways that I would, whoops, I'm not even on here. The, uh, I, let me back up, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused on what I'm doing. But the pre-emergent harvest applications are here. But guys, I'm, the guys that were watching were thinking I'm crazy. I wasn't on the screen. But the March and April for the pre-emergent herbicides for this area. So go to Purdue or go to Ohio State or go to Wisconsin or go to you know UMass or go to University of Tennessee or Florida, whatever. And generally, they're going to have similar calendars like this. And if you want basic you know, general information as to when you can consider applying these particular products, these are you know, decent ways to do that. So it's the end of February, it's coming in the end of February and it got warm and, and, and you might want to go out and apply pre-emergent herbicides. But what this is saying is you want to hold on, wait a, wait a second, you know, you want to apply fertilizers. I, there's a fertilizer application right around the corner that it should, it must've happened on Friday because I went out on Saturday and you could see the prills still on the turf. It hadn't even dissolved yet. And it was in February. That's a bit early just because it got warm last week doesn't mean you should go out and start throwing fertilizer out because that grass is still sitting there doing nothing. And it's going to continue to sit there really doing nothing for another two or three weeks, maybe four weeks before it really starts to wake up. Okay. Um, so that's all I wanted to go over on that. Now, let's get into the article and I'm going to try to keep this to an hour. I'm trying my best to keep this, you know, these these shows to an hour. Last week there was we had been going over nitrogen for a couple of weeks, and last week we went over nitrogen stabilized products, products urea that contains a couple of additives that either reduce urea hydrolysis and therefore reduce volatilization, or reduce the conversion of ammonium to nitrate. So it's a nitrification inhibitor. And we found through the literature that the, the literature is full of information about 
these products in the world of turfgrass management, and there's very little evidence at all to to warrant the inclusion. In fact, one of the articles said there is no valid reason to include it. There, it doesn't warrant the use of these MBPT and DCD type products, the nitrogen stabilized products in turf management. There's just not uh, usually a, a concomitant increase in turf quality, turf greening longevity of that compared to urea we just don't see a benefit to these nitrogen stabilized products hardly at all and then what i was trying to make the message clear is that even if by chance you do see a response greater than urea the cost of that response is substantially higher than urea it's not five or ten or fifteen percent greater it's usually double the cost of urea so there's there's you know i would say a fairly unified consensus that's i guess that's redundant there's a consensus in the turf grass science community that these stabilized nitrogen sources are of very little value in turf grass management and one of the reasons why is because in many cases we can control water at a, at a greater level than in ag where those products might be valuable to ag they're not really valuable to in, in turf grass management, generally because we are able to control the water more, better. But the question comes up, well, how much water should you apply? Right? How do you know how much water you should apply? You hear these numbers floating around all the time. You should apply 0.1 inch of water or 0.2 inches of water after you fertilize with urea. Well, how do you know it's 0.1 inches or 0.2 inches? Or why isn't it 0.8 inches or one inch? You know, how do you know these things? That's epistemology. That's an epistemological question. So the paper today is going to, going to address that exact question. The title of today's paper is Reducing Ammonia Volatilization from Kentucky Bluegrass Turf by Irrigation. It was published by Bowman, Paul, Davis, and Nelson. Nelson was at the University of Saskatchewan, where the other authors were at the University of California in Davis. I thought Dan Bowman was somewhere else, but I guess he was at UC Davis when he wrote this. And it was published in Hort Science in 1987. So this is a free article. You can go download it right now for free and read the whole thing. It's very short, very easy to follow. Okay. So let's get into it. Volatilization of ammonia following urea fertilization of turf can be substantial and may contribute to reduced plant responses. And he has a few citations for that. Volatile losses of 39% and 31% of urea nitrogen applied to Kentucky bluegrass have been reported. Similar losses of 52% and 30% were measured from urea applied to warm season grasses. And so I may go over these papers at some point. Various practices have been recommended to reduce ammonia volatilization from urea, including surface banding and injecting fertilizer. Applying urea to dry or cold soils. Mixing fertilizer salts with urea and watering urea into the soil. There's a variety of uh, uh, references he has here. Irrigation for, for rainfall following urea. I think that's a typo. I think it should say irrigation or rainfall following urea application should decrease volatilization since it positions the urea in a zone with lower evaporation, a lower urease activity, and higher cation exchange capacity than the surface zone, and it minimizes the locally high concentrations of ammonia and ammonium. So what he's saying here is that if you irrigate it, what should happen is it moves it down into the soil where it's less likely. The risk is lower for volatilization 
in the soil than it is at a higher point in the soil turf grass system, being the thatch or the, the clipping or the, the um, uh, leaves or stems. Okay. The amounts, of the amounts of irrigation reported to reduce volatile loss from agricultural soils varies from 0.5 to, so, so like a third of an inch to one inch of water. For turf systems, however, there is little information on the minimum amount of irrigation or rainfall re required to reduce ammonia volatilization following urea. Remember, this was 1987. So this TITCO paper, I'm going to go over next, I think maybe even tomorrow, maybe. TITCO had, had, has shown that volatilization from turf is reduced with one inch of irrigation, while Sherrod and Beauchamp observed that a little less than one inch, say two-thirds of an inch, of rainfall markedly reduce ammonia loss. This study was conducted to investigate ammonia losses following application of urea and solution to turf and to determine the amount of supplemental irrigation required to significantly reduce volatile loss. So there's the objectives of the study. You're going to see in this the depth of irrigation following urea, and you're also going to see a component in here where the, the carrier volume, when they applied the urea, they applied it in two different carrier volumes. One was uh, 0.02 inches of water and 0.08 inches of water. I know you're going to ask me, what is that in gallons per acre? I don't know. <laughs> you can do those calculation online. You can figure that out. Um, but that's what they applied it in the carrier volumes. And then they either applied water following the application of the urea or they did not apply water and they did it at different depths. Had a couple different experiments in here. Experiment one was conducted in September 1984 and repeated in September oh September 5th and repeated in September 13th, and then in July 1985 on a research plot of Kentucky bluegrass located at UC Davis. The soil was a Yolo loam. It's a fun. It's a fun soil to say Yolo loam, Yolo loam, <laughs> and the pH was 7.3. So it's certainly you know the point where you would expect some substantial you you know or possible volatilization at that pH. The turf was mowed at what, one and a half inches, something like that, one little over, a little less than two inches, with clippings removed and was irrigated to meet evaporative demand. So this happens a lot in research, and I don't think it's necessarily exactly representative of reality, where in research we have to control as much as we can, and one of the major influential factors is irrigation. So when we don't just run the run, run the heads willy-nilly, oh, we turn them on, they come on Monday and Wednesday and they do this, and we, we, no. We apply water largely based upon the previous week's evapotranspiration. The evapotranspiration from previous week was, say, um, I don't know, 0.4 inches. The next week, we'll... Rainfall and irrigation combined will try to hit like 80% of that, something like that, 70% of that. And so we're constantly controlling water as best we can. Whereas in reality, I think the homeowner just, or the homeowner just has the water running, whatever they're running. The fairways are just running. I don't, think, I don't know if the superintendents are turning off their irrigation on and off as frequently as we do in research or in sport turf, right? I don't know if you're out there measuring the amount of water that's going on and keeping track of it to the same extent that we do in research. So we, we do that because we know the importance and the impact of water. Applying too much water is going to cause a problem. Applying too little water is going to apply a problem, going to result in a problem. 
So we, we, we do this based upon evaporative demand, and it's usually pretty tight. You know, you know, we're adjusting water daily or every other day on many of these irrigation, many of these studies. I don't know necessarily if that's the case in reality. So keep in mind, there's a reason why we do that. It's because it's incredibly influential on the on growth of the plant, the water. So where you can, you know, spend effort with water first, and that goes back to my pyramid. Anyway, nitrogen was applied at four pounds of N, oh, 200 kilograms of ammonium sulfate. Oh, of N, okay, so four pounds of N as ammonium sulfate per year and four split applications. So they applied four one-pound applications of ammonium sulfate. Thatch was about... Uh, a little less than about two thirds of an inch thick at the time of the experiment. That the reason that's important is because a lot of urease exists in thatch, and you're, they're going to show that a little bit in here. They separated it out. The turf was mowed and irrigated with about a little less than two inches of water 24 hours prior to for less a lot of water, four centimeters. So it's uh, inch and two thirds, 24 hours prior to fertilization. I'm going to come back to these graphs. Don't worry about it. Uh, one pound of nitrogen as urea were applied at 9 a.m. in two liters of solution to turf plots of one square meter, equivalent to 0.2 centimeter depth of solution, which 0.2 centimeters depth is 0.08 gallons. Or, I'm sorry, 0.08 inches. So that's going to be the high, the high carrier volume. They're going to do another one at a lower carrier volume. Okay, so they apply the, the uh, one pound of nitrogen as urea at 9 a.m., Within five minutes of fertilization, plots were irrigated with either 0, 0.2 inches, 0.4 inches, 0.6 inches, or 0.8 inches. Wait, that ain't, yeah, point, wait, that ain't right. Hang on a second, that ain't right. I messed up. I completely messed that up. Let me fix this real quick, and I'll be right back to it. Okay, so my notes are backwards here. But I will fix it. At least I caught it, right? So that's 0 0.4. 0 0.8. And then... 1.5. Okay, now we're on track. Okay, sorry for you guys. I usually had that right, but I messed that one up. Okay, so back on track. So the plots were irrigated with either 0, 0.2 inches. 0.4 inches, 0.8 inches, or 1.5 inches of deionized water applied with a sprayer at a rate of, well, don't worry about that, applied with a sprayer, okay? So those were the volumes of irrigation they applied afterwards. Remember, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.8, and 1.5 inches, five minutes after they fertilized. Trapping of ammonia commenced the first hour after fertilization with a sampling time of 15 minutes per hour. So they went out after they, they uh, fertilize and every 15 minutes they started measuring measuring oh, commence within the first hour so within the first hour they, they started measuring ammonia volatilization every 15 minutes 
Ammonia volatilization is expressed as a percent of applied N corrected for controls. That was experiment one. Now experiment two has the two different carrier volumes. Experiment two was conducted on October 10th and repeated on October 25th and 84. This experiment differed from experiment one in two ways. First, an additional treatment was included in which urea was applied at the 0.2 inches as well as the 0.8 inches of the carrier volume. So we have two different carrier volumes in the next experiment. The volatile losses of ammonia were determined at one and four hour intervals over the tw first 24 hours. So they just spread out the measurement intervals of measuring and volatilization. Both experiments were terminated after 24 to 72 hours when the rate of loss had decreased to near the control level. So basically when it leveled off and there was no more volatilization, they stopped it. Okay, so now we're going to get into the results. The, so the studies is on Kentucky bluegrass in, it was in, uh, at the University of California, Davis. They applied urea to Kentucky bluegrass, and then they applied either 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.8, or 1.5 inches of water directly after they applied urea. That was in experiment one. In experiment two, they did the same thing, but they applied a urea in a lower carrier volume, not just the 0.08 inches, but the 0.08 inches and the 0.02 inches, so a lighter carrier volume. And I, and like I said, you can do the conversion on gallons per acre. It's probably something closer to what you'd use in a Z sprayer. Okay. And then they measured a volatilization at a different time interval, but they still measured volatilization in the second experiment. Just more, more data points. Okay. Now for the, for the results. For all treatments, most of the ammonia was lost during the first nine hour sampling period with little additional loss after that time. So if you're going to lose um, nitrogen from volatilization from urea, you're going to lose it in the first, before you go home, basically. You sprayed it out in the morning, 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And then when you go home, whatever is going to volatilize, in this study at least, it happened before they went home and took a shower for bed. <laughs> okay, so it, it happens quick in the first day. Okay. As little, I'm going to read the results because it's, it's very, hang on, it's very short. And then I'll come back to the graphs. As little as 0 0.5 centimeters, which is 0 0.2 inches, as little as 0 0.2 inches of irrigation following the application of urea decreased volatile losses from 13% to 4% and from 23% to 5% with further reductions occurring with increasing depth of irrigation. The rapid rate of volatilization during the first 12 hours after urea application indicates that irrigation should be applied as soon as possible after fertilization to decrease loss. So the bulk of this is right in that sentence, right in that paragraph. The 0 0.2 inches of water reduced the, vault, the nitrogen that lost in the first experiment was 13%. When you applied 0 0.2 inches of water, it went from 13 down to 4%. And in the second experiment, it went from 23% from straight urea down to 5% with just 0.2 inches of water. It doesn't take that much. You just got to get some water on there and that'll help reduce it from urea. Now, I'm going to talk tomorrow probably about different nitrogen sources. Like what happens if I can't irrigate? Well, there's another nitrogen source that there's very little volatilization compared to urea and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay, loss was maximum with an application volume of 0 0.2 centimeters, which was uh, the, they, 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 they keep changing. There's a typo in this again. Yeah, man, there's another typo in this thing. 
Let me see if I can find the actual. That throws me off when there's a little typo, especially when it's on a number. I once had a typo on a, on a table I published in a document that moved the decimal place over one. It's a factor of 10 off. It's kind of important. That's a little, that's an important error. And that happened in the publishing of it. I mean, it happened in the printing of it, not on my end. So sometimes this happens. I can't find it in here. But anyway, um, the carrier volume of zero point. I can't see that. So uh, loss was. Hang on. That's just a typo and it's confusing me. I'm just going to read the graphs and I'll come back to those last couple of green things. Okay, let's look at the graph. There's two or three graphs in here. I'll see if I can get them all on the screen here. So this graph here is the cumulative ammonia, uh, ammonia volatilization as a percent of applied nitrogen. And for those listening, it's time after application in hours on the x-axis and then volatilized as a percent of, of applied on the y-axis. And if you just apply straight urea and don't water it in, in this particular study, the graph goes up to about 11% in the first, you know, seven or eight hours. And then it starts to level off. So, you know, at seven, eight, nine hours, it really goes up to about 11%. And then it levels off here to about 12, 13%. So the, the majority of it all was gone in the first day. Okay. That's with no supplemental irrigation. This is what they're talking about. This reduction here from... 13% down to 4% is what they're talking about from just applying 0.2 inches of water. You really drop that volatilization down substantially by applying a little bit of irrigation. And you'll see that within the, in the first day, they applied this water here, right? So then you see that, that reduction in the first seven, eight, nine hours. And if you apply more and more water, you see the numbers go down and down and down. Now, this is a substantial amount of water down here. When you get to 1% and 2% volatilization, you, have to, you need to get down you know, 0.8 inches of water. That's a lot of water to put down to really remove that urea off the turf grass and into the soil. But just a little bit of water reduces it down quite a bit. And if you noticed from the previous um, conversations with Dr. Christians, myself, I think even Dr. Soldat mentioned it, where if you're going to be using these urease inhibitors, to reduce volatilization and you're going to water them in you're going to re there, there's no you, you don't need to apply it anyway and this is why this is why we have that this is why i have not speaking for them this is why i have that opinion if you don't water in the urease inhibitors their efficacy is not as great you're going to have less of an effect if you don't water them in but if you do water them in you just water in urea you're going to see this reduction anyway so what's the point? You're going to spend double for a nitrogen stabilizer that you're going to water in and get the same effect if you just water in straight urea without it. So that's why that's how I know what I know about that. This these sorts of data and you'll see this very consistently in the literature where you'll see a great reduction in volatilization simply by applying a little bit of water. Okay, so that's that's figure 1. When you go to figure 2, which is the next experiment, where they had two different carrier volumes, but they also had applied the same volume of irrigation afterwards. You're going to see that the carrier volume, the the lighter carrier volume, which is A, this lighter, let's see, looks like the cumulative ammonium volatilization 
as a percentage of urea in applied at one pound. The urea was sprayed applied at 0.5 without supplemental irrigation. So this one right here, A, is without supplemental irrigation at the low carrier volume. And the next B is with the higher carrier volume. So I guess the volatilization goes up at a higher carrier volume on this particular study. I don't know if that's a typo again or not. There's been a couple typos in here, but I'm going to go with it and say that the lower carrier volume resulted in less volatilization in this particular study. It went from about 22 or 23% down to about 16%. And then you apply a little bit of water. When you apply a little bit of water, you're going from this top line, which is no water, all the way down here. You apply that, that, that same volume, that, point, that 0 0.2 inches of water, and you get this reduction from 23 or 4% down to like 6 or 7. Okay. You, you see a tremendous reduction simply by applying a little bit of water. That's it. Okay. So if you want to spend twice as much money for your urea by using a nitrogen stabilizer and you're going to water it in, in my opinion, you just wasted all of that money because you're not going to see any difference between doing that and just watering in straight urea. You just water in straight urea and you'll see the reduction already. Okay. We're going to talk about how that happens. They did discuss a little bit about why they saw what they saw in the next table down here. I'm just going to show these in tail. I'm not going to read the results. I know I said I was going to do that, but I'm not going to do that. Sometimes it's just better just to read these things. If I can get it on, on the page here. So why is moving the, the urea down off the leaves, out of the thatch into the soil, how, why is that resulting in a reduction in volatilization is the question. And in table two, for those listening, is the urease activity as a function of depth in the turf soil profile for Kentucky bluegrass. So if you, for those of you who might not remember, is that urease is the enzyme that is necessary to convert urea into ammonia and then onto ammonium and so forth. And so without urease, it takes a very, very long time for that conversion to occur. With urease, it happens rather, rather quickly. So if you're applying urea in locations where there's very high activity of urease, you're much, your risk of volatilization is higher than compared when you move the urea into a location that has low urease activity. And on this table, you'll see the urease activity in the shoots the leaves, the sheath, the thatch, and then the top centimeter of soil. So like the top third of an inch of soil. And then the top inch, or the, the, from a third of an inch down to like one and a third inches. So the, just the very top of the soil, and then the next you know inch or so of the soil. And if you look at it on the dry weight basis, which I'm not a, I'm not a plant physiologist, so I don't, I don't know what the difference between dry weight of urease and the area basis, I mean, I don't know how they measure that. But if you look at the urease activity, when you're looking at the shoots, you see, and the shoots, and basically all the turf grass, you're looking at numbers, and the, I don't even know what that number even means. Honestly, let's see what it says. It says values are expressed as, that's micrograms of ammonium nitrogen per gram of dry weight per hour, and then milligrams of ammonium in per square meter per hour. So just however they measured it, I guess they measured it in the actual amount of ammonium Per hour, I've never, I've never done that. So I've never even seen it done. So I'm not sure how they do that. But 
You'll see numbers in 549, 638, 453 in the shoots and the sheath and the thatch of urease activity. Then when you go into the soil, you're looking at 30 in the top centimeter and then six. So you're looking at factors of 100-fold greater. Well, no, almost, yeah, six to 600, 100-fold greater urease activity in the, in the shoots and the sheath and the thatch, basically, as opposed to uh, when compared to the, the bottom or the next inch or so of soil. And if you look at the area bases, you'll see basically the same thing, not quite the same magnitude, but you'll see a lot, much larger uh, activity of urease in the shoots and the sheaths and the thatch, which is 700, 300, and 300 on an area basis compared to 400 in the first centimeter of soil and nine, basically 100 in the next two inch centimeters of soil. So the shortness, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really bad about getting these things on the screen sometimes, guys. I'm not, I can't keep track of everything, but this is what I'm talking about for those who are watching. I apologize, I didn't have it on the screen again. <laughs> it's Monday morning. What are you going to do? Um, but this is what I'm talking about. You see a large activity of urease basically above the soil whether it's on an area basis or a dry weight basis. But once you get into the soil, the urease activity declines rapidly, particularly when you get below that first centimeter of soil. The urease activity declines rapidly. Why is that important? That's important because that enzyme is, is necessary to convert that urea over to a form that can be volatilized. It needs to be converted for plant uptake. But in that conversion process, there's a risk of volatilization. And so what they're saying is, what they postulate is, is that the reason why they found reduced volatilization and following irrigation is because they moved the urea below the area where the urease activity is the highest. Get it off the leaves, get it off the plant, get it in the soil where the plant can start doing its conversion without increasing the risk of volatilization to the same degree it would be on the leaves. That's why irrigating the urea in greatly reduces volatilization of nitrogen from urea. Okay. I'll read the last couple of uh, sentences here and then we're done. I'm trying to get out. You know, it's already been an hour. I'm getting close to getting finished here, guys. From these results, it is apparent that positioning somehow predisposes the urea to volatile loss. At least three mechanisms at least three mechanisms, rate of drying, biological immobilization, and urease activity, either alone or in combination, might explain this relationship. The latter mechanism was investigated by measuring the urease activity in the bluegrass turf profile, which is what I just showed in that table. Okay, So they didn't measure the drying or the biological immobilization as it might have affected urease or um, might have affected nitrogen volatilization. They measured the urease activity, and they found that there was a there was a good explanation as to why moving the urea out of the out of the turf, off the turf, into the soil, very likely uh, resulted in reduced volatilization because there was less urease down there. It has been shown in this field study that ammonia volatilization from Kentucky bluegrass turf fertilized with urea was markedly reduced with supplement, supplemental irrigation of as little as 0.2 to 0.4 inches of water. Okay? Therefore, supplemental irrigation should be applied as soon as possible after fertilization to be effective. It's pretty straightforward. Now, 
they didn't measure turf grass quality or turf grass growth or anything like that. They just measured volatilization. And oftentimes we connect these two and they should, we shouldn't. We say, well, we're going to reduce volatilization so there's more nitrogen available to the plant. If there's more nitrogen available to the plant, there's going to be an increase in turf quality or growth. Sometimes we don't connect those. We don't find that. A, if A beats B and B beats C, then for, therefore A must be, be able to beat C. Well, that doesn't always work that way. So having said that, they clearly showed that if you want to reduce volatilization, applying just 0.2 inches of water following application is going to be you know, a good estimation or good best management practice to follow. And I know, you know, the questions are going to be, well, how do we get the homeowners to apply the water? And they, some of them don't have irrigation and so forth. There's all sorts of, you know, what ifs and all these things that can happen. But if you have access to the water and you can control the water, just apply a little bit. You don't need to run the water over and over and over and keep running it for an inch of, of you know, afterwards. You know, r- roughly speaking, on a sandy loam soil, r- rough numbers, if the soil is already at fill capacity, and you apply one inch of water, that one inch of water is going to move the wetting front down to about 10 or 12 inches down. Rough, rough numbers. Okay, guys. So if in, in that wetting front is the nitrate and the urea moving with the wetting front. That's extremely clear in the literature that nitrates and urea will move with the wetting front and it'll form what's referred to as a breakthrough curve if you're measuring nitrates and urea at the bottom. Or you don't want that wetting front to move down below the rooting zone. So the reason I'm saying that is, yes, irrigation afterwards will greatly reduce volatilization, but you don't need to apply a lot. Just apply, you know, about, you know, quarter of an inch, a little less than a quarter inch. Don't need to apply more because applying more is very likely to move that urea below the rooting zone. And that's the definition of leaching. Okay. We're going to go into that in great depth in the future, guys and gals. Okay, any any questions for me before I go? Um, Adam C. This may be a dumb question, <laughs> okay, but when spraying urea, is the majority of the nitrogen being taken up by the leaf tissue or by watering it into the soil and then taken up by the roots? So Adam C., I tell the audience, okay, I did not plant you to ask that question, okay? That's an extremely timely question for this week. But I didn't, I didn't ask you to ask that question. I don't know you. So on Thursday, we are going to answer that exact question very clearly. Okay? Well, much more clearly. Much more clear. It's going to depend a lot on the carrier volume. What is your intent of the application? Are you going to apply it at a very low volume and have it stick on the leaf? Or are you going to apply it at a higher volume and have it wash off the leaf into the soil? All that's going to be, it's all going to depend. But on Thursday, we're going to go over the, the amount of nitrogen that can be taken up as urea in a foliar application. And I think there's two different, I think there's a warm season grass and a cool season grass. I think it's Bermuda and bent, I think, if I, don't, if I recall correctly. But there's a there's a fairly large amount that can be taken up through the leaves themselves as urea. Fairly large amount. Much more than you might expect. 
And then in the case of urea, if it doesn't volatilize and gets washed off the leaf, then it would have a secondary opportunity for uptake through the roots. But we are going to um, kind of address that this week. So the answer to your question is, it depends on, on the carrier volume and what your intent is. If you're applying at 20, or 20 gallons an acre, or 40 gallons an acre or less than that, and you're trying to stick it on the leaf, then you're gonna have probably more taken up by the leaf than through the roots. If you're applying at a much higher carrier volume, say 80 gallons an acre, 100 gallons an acre or higher, and the intent is a liquid application, and your the intent is to wash it off into the soil, then you would have more taken up through the roots. Okay, so Chad, it's funny. I mean, it's really interesting the questions because I'm gonna <laughs> the, the question. The next question is very similar. To, it, I'm gonna come close to answering that question with a paper. I think on Wednesday morning. So the question in the chat is from Chad. It says, curious on watering after applying granular soluble urea and ammonium sulfate and if the prill size would matter all that much. So there, I don't know about the prill size, but there is a paper I'm going to go over that talked about prilled versus crystalline between the, I think it was, was it urea or was it ammonium sulfate? I, I, I have to look. But I am going to go over a paper that talks about the differences between what the, you know the uptake or the if it's uptake or volatilization I can't remember between the pril versus crystalline forms of the same fertilizer. So it's not necessarily the particle size per se, but it's in that realm of the question you're asking. And um, with urea, I would just say my this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. The particle size is probably not going to matter that much. You probably would see a statistical difference, but it's going to solubilize so fast anyway. If you have a particle size, say 250 or 60 SGN versus say 90 or less SGN, they're all going to solubilize and melt into the soil very quickly if there's any moisture. So the particle size is probably going to be, you know, practically speaking, insignificant. Okay. But that's just my opinion. Okay, guys. Thanks, Elevated Lawnscape, for showing up. I see some people popped in here late. Turf, turf nerd lawn care. Um, good to see you here. Okay, guys. I'm gonna let you go. I'll be back tomorrow. Um, there's gonna be, uh, there's gonna be, there's normally Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, and then Wednesday evening. That's gonna stay this week, and then we're we're, we're gonna have another show later in the week. So there's gonna be five shows this week, which is going to change. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna keep this up. <laughs> there's a little i realized i was like man i got i think i have 80 or 90 live videos already the podcasts are i don't know what they're up to 70 or 80 by the way that reminds me go go watch the podcast listen to the podcast as well download those if you want to just listen while you're driving or working or whatever and you don't want to watch it um i love this will be loaded up tomorrow morning whenever youtube finishes processing it but um i've been putting out a lot okay so i didn't realize it until here recently I'm like whoa it's a lot of a lot of papers i've been going over so I'm going to probably back that off just so everybody knows. But for now, just there'll be five this week and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Guys, enjoy some, um, enjoy some Brazilian music as we go here. So um, let me know if you enjoy it or not. It's very, it probably is very different. I can almost assure you've never heard it. Be kind. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Thanks so much. Have a good week. Bye.